Well, I don't know when I have looked forward to being with a group of pastors more than I have looked forward to being with you for this week. I feel such a kindred spirit uh, with you men and hold so many um, like convictions that my own heart has already been encouraged as I've been here with you. I want to thank Pastor David Strain and the committee who uh, issued the invitation. Uh, I want to thank Ligon Duncan, who for years has served as a host for this conference, and so I feel very privileged to stand on the shoulders of, of many men who have shown leadership in this conference. And my prayer and desire for each and every one of you is that God will use these three sessions that I will have with you um, to minister the Word of God to your hearts. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I want to begin by reading what will be uh, the focus of our exposition tonight, tomorrow morning, and tomorrow night, Lord willing, for us to look at verses 6 through 12. This is, of course, Paul's first pastoral epistle written to his young son in the faith, Timothy, as he gives instruction in pastoral ministry, instruction that each and every one of us so greatly need here tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, and the title of this message tonight is The Spiritual Diet of a Godly Minister. I'm reading from the New American Standard. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe or command and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. The theme of our conference is an awful weapon, a holy minister in God's hand. Now, the title is drawn from a letter that Robert Murray McShane, that zealous Scottish pastor of Dundee wrote in a letter to a fellow minister who was preparing to leave Scotland 
and to go to the mission field in Germany. The date of this letter is October the 2nd, 1840. McShane is in Dundee. At the time of the writing, he is 27 years old. He has but two years to live. The missionary to whom he writes this letter is Reverend Daniel Edwards. And in this letter, McShane asserts the direct cause and effect relationship between the personal holiness of the minister and the effectiveness of his ministry. McShane begins by prioritizing and emphasizing the inner man, the heart, over and against mere acquired knowledge. And so McShane begins this letter from which this sentence is drawn. Dear friend, I trust you will have a pleasant and profitable time in Germany. I know you will apply hard to German, but do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. McShane used, then used the following military analogy, comparing the minister to a sword in the hand of God in the day of battle and warfare. And McShane goes on in this letter to write, how diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, His instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto Him to bear His name. And McShane then makes the metaphor abundantly clear as he writes to this man going to the mission field. He says, in great measure... According to the purity and perfections of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. And what McShane is elevating is godliness over giftedness. And then comes the knockout punch. This sentence, remember, or excuse me, A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Close quote. The point that McShane is making is very clear. There is a direct correlation between the purity of the sword and the power of its effect when it is used. And even so, he says, there is a close and inseparable relationship between the purity of the man of God and the power of God upon his life and ministry. A pure instrument in the hand of God, McShane writes, is an awful weapon. Today, when we think of the word awful, we think of bad, like that tasted awful to me. But that is not how McShane used the word in the 1840s in Scotland. Instead, In McShane's day, rather than awful being a strong negative, it was in reality a strong positive. The word was used in a military sense as causing terror to one's enemies. McShane was saying, 
It is a holy instrument that causes dread upon the forces of sin and Satan in this world. It is a holy instrument, McShane is saying, that strikes terror in the forces of darkness in the battle for souls. As a result, a sword in God's hand must be pure if it is to be powerful. It must be clean if it is to be conquering. And it must be sharp if it is to be subduing. This is precisely the point that the Apostle Paul is making to his young son in the faith, Timothy, in these very verses. As Timothy is in the struggle of his life, he is thrown into the deep end of the pool. As he is assigned this position in Ephesus, a, a long-standing church with many notable pastors and many notable Bible teachers. And as Timothy finds himself in this ministry situation as a young man still wet behind the ears, he has unqualified elders that he has inherited. He has unqualified deacons. He has aggressive women who have overstepped their bounds and propriety in the church. The care of the widows is being neglected. The plague of Gnosticism is beginning to spread through the church. And as Paul writes to Timothy, he gives him much counsel, among which is, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching, Timothy, strap yourself in the pulpit and preach until I can get there. And at the same time, Timothy must keep his sword sharp. Timothy must keep his life pure and his life clean before God. And the effectiveness of his ministry during these tempestuous and difficult days will be in large measure determined by his own personal piety and godliness and pursuit of holiness and his dependence upon God. That is the focus of, of these verses. And as we will have these sessions, as we will look at these verses, I want to lay out for you where we are headed. Tonight, as we look at verse 6 and the first part of verse 7, I want you to note the spiritual diet of a godly minister. And then tomorrow morning, beginning in the middle of verse 7, when he writes, on the other hand, discipline yourself. We will look at the spiritual discipline of a godly minister. And then finally, tomorrow night, Lord willing, as we look at verses 11 and 12, we will look at the spiritual distinctives of a godly minister. As he gives five areas in Timothy's life that must be in right relationship with the holiness of God. So, tonight I want us to look at verses 6 and 7. And I want you to note, first of all, the recognition of a godly minister. The recognition of a godly minister. In the middle of verse 6, Paul makes this statement to Timothy, and he says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. When he says, you will be a good servant, this is the main verb in verse 6, 
supported by participles on both sides. But the main focus in this verse is what Timothy must become if he is to be effectively used by God. He must be a good servant. In fact, he is saying you must prove yourself to be a good servant. This verb, be, is in the middle voice, which means the responsibility lies with Timothy. Uh, He cannot be looking simply for God to do this in him, independent of Timothy giving himself to the pursuit of godliness and disciplining himself for the purpose of godliness. Timothy must own this. Timothy must assume responsibility to be this good servant of Christ Jesus. This word good in the original language means excellent, noble, reflecting the high calling of God, admirable, choice, commendable, surpassing. Timothy must be more than just a servant of Christ Jesus. He must be a servant of a particular kind. He must be a good servant of Christ Jesus. For not every servant is a good servant of Christ Jesus. There are unfaithful servants of Christ Jesus. There are mediocre servants of Christ Jesus. There are those who fail to discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness, who fall short of being a good servant of Christ Jesus. When he says servant of Christ Jesus, he's reminding Timothy, you're not simply a servant of just anyone. You are a servant of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. A good servant is not doing his own thing. He he is not building his own kingdom. He, He is not pursuing his own agenda. He is not championing his own cause, not to be a servant of Christ Jesus. To be a servant of Christ Jesus means you must seek to build Christ's kingdom and to be a servant of Christ's word and of Christ's people. To be a good servant of Christ Jesus means you must promote Christ's reputation and exalt Christ's name. And from the moment Paul was converted on the Damascus road, as he was headed to to Damascus, the Lord Jesus, as you know, appeared and knocked Saul off his high horse. And immediately... Who are you? And he answers his own question before he finishes the sentence. Who are you, Lord? And then, what will you have me to do? And later, Ananias will say, You are a chosen instrument to bear the name of Christ to the Gentiles, and it will be told you what you are to do. And from that point on, for the rest of his life, Paul was a man under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He was under the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. He would go wherever Christ would send him. He would do whatever Christ would would require. He would pay whatever price that Christ would require of him. His entire life, his whole life was caught up 
now in being a good servant of Christ Jesus. This should be the loftiest aim of every one of us in this building here tonight. That each and every one of us would seek no higher title and no higher accolade than to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, If God has called you to be His servant, why stoop to be a king? And Martin Luther said, If I could today become a king or emperor, I would not give up my office as a preacher. It was not too long ago I received a very discreet email that my secretary decoded and said, This is from a sitting U.S. senator from Washington. And in this email, he asked if I would come to Washington, D.C. and spend a day with him and go to each of his meetings, press conferences. And so I flew to Washington, D.C., and I spent a day with him. And toward the end of the day, he had a press conference in which he introduced me to the rest of the media there, and one man raised his hand and asked if I was here to announce my candidacy for the U.S. Senate. And I said, sir, that would be an enormous step down from what God has called me to do. For God has called me to be His servant and to preach His Word, and there is no higher calling in all the world. I trust that down in the depth of your heart and in your soul, that is etched in stone, that is anchored by a heavy weight, that you know what God has called you to do, you know who you are, and you know the assignment and the task that has been put before you, and that you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And so that's where... Paul begins this section with Timothy, is, is anchoring this, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. In fact, it's the big idea, not only of verse 6, it's the big idea in reality of this entire chapter of what it is to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, second, not only the recognition of a godly servant, but the qualifications of a godly servant. And as we look at verse 6 and the first part of verse 4, we see that there are four qualifications of a godly servant. Two are negative, two are positive. And the middle two that are positive deal with the godliness and the personal holiness of Timothy as a man of God. In other words, in order to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, there are some necessary prerequisites that Timothy must meet in order for such a title to be attributed to him. And as we look at this tonight, the same is laid at our feet as well. For these qualifications are timeless They rise above the centuries. They rise above every culture. They they rise above any denominational distinctives. These are true for all of God's servants in every generation, on every continent, and in every place. So, as we look at these, 
I want to draw these to your attention. Number one, at the beginning of verse 6, is address evil. He begins in verse 6 by saying, in pointing out these things to the brethren. Probably most of you have an ESV here tonight, and it says, if you put these things before the brothers. That word, if, signals a first-class condition, and it means, if you are to be a good servant, then this must be true in your ministry. You must be one who is pointing out these things to the brethren. It's a part of our ministry uh, to be a watchman on the tower, a watchman on the wall to blow the trumpet and to sound a warning and to address error so that those under our watch care and entrusted to us as shepherds of the flock so that they will be well protected. When he says, uh, if you put these things before the brothers, we would ask, what are these things? If you put these things before the brothers, what things? And the commentators tell us that what Paul has in mind here is what has immediately preceded in verses 1 through 5. In a general way, everything that he has said to this point in this letter, but specifically in this context... Timothy must be pointing out to the flock as a minister these dangers of apostasy that he mentions in verses 1 through 5. He writes, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times. It certainly speaks to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the breathing out of the mouth of God what would be recorded to be the written Word of God. The Spirit explicitly says, without any mumbling, without any, uh, without any misunderstanding, and it's been well said, the Bible's not hard to understand, it's just hard to swallow. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, referring to the entire time between the first and the second coming of Christ, some will fall away from the faith. And the faith here referring to the standard of sound words, the apostles teaching, what has already been recorded in the Old Testament, uh, the words and the teachings of, of Christ, and the parts of the New Testament that have already begun to be recorded that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, and the reason for it is paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And Paul says to Timothy, you must be continually pointing these things out to the brethren. In fact, this verb, pointing out, is in the, it is in the present tense, You must be always pointing out. You must always be warning. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Richard Baxter said, the most active minister in all of England is the devil himself. He never takes a sabbatical rest. He never takes a day off. He he never calls in sick. He he is always prowling and searching and and looking for 
his inroads into the people of God. And, and Paul says to Timothy, as you're there in Ephesus and as the winds of Gnosticism are already howling and sweeping through the church, you need to be pointing these things out to the brethren. It was a little over a year ago, I picked up the copy of the memoirs and remains of Robert Murray McShane, not knowing that David and the committee would select this famous sentence from McShane to, to be the theme for this conference. And I picked up a sermon that he read entitled, I Love the Lord's Day. You've got to read, I Love the Lord's Day. And it is, I don't think I've ever preached a day in my life after reading this sermon. It is a thunderbolt out of the sky above as McShane calls into account the Glasgow and Scottish Railroad for announcing that they're going to run the trains on the Sabbath. And he takes on virtually the entire nation and points out to the brethren and beyond the brethren of what is in his heart and in his soul regarding the, the guarding of this, of this fourth commandment. And as McShane preaches, he is a watchman on the tower and he is pointing out to, to the brethren on how they must be on guard for the apostasy. Let me just read you a couple sentences from, from this sermon. He makes John Knox sound like a devotional teacher. <laughs> Guilty men who under Satan are leading on the deep, dark flalix of Sabbath breakers Yours in a solemn position. You are robbers. You are robbing God of His holy day. You are murderers. You murder the souls of your servants. God said you shall not do any work, you nor your servant, but you compel your servants to break God's law and sell their souls for gain. You are sinners against light. Your Bible and your catechism, the words of godly parents, perhaps now in the Sabbath above and in the Lord remonstrates of God-fearing men are ringing in your ears while you perpetuate this deed of shame and you glory in it. You are traitors to your nation. You are moral suicides, stabbing your own souls proclaiming to the world that you are not the Lord's people and hurrying on your souls to meet the Sabbath breaker's doom. That's just one paragraph. My, my little book is still sizzling from reading this sermon by Robert Murray McShane. And I thought, Lord, how we as ministers today have been quietened we have, been, we have been backed into a corner. Uh, we, we have had to eat our own gunpowder. We have been muted. As someone has well said, the problem with preachers today is no one wants to kill them anymore. It's just, I'm okay, you're okay, can't we all get along? 
But a good servant of Christ Jesus will be always pointing out these things regarding deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons and the falling away of the faith. So, that's the first qualification. But my main thrust is what now is second. Absorb truth. He goes on to say in verse 6, "...in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus." In other words, if you, want to be, if you are to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, number one, you must point these things out to the brethren. If you do not point these things out to the brethren, you are not a good servant. And then the second qualification, he says in verse 6, "...constantly nourished on the words of truth." In the ESV, it says, "...being trained in." This is another participle which modifies, supports the main verb, which is, "...you will be." In order for you to be, you must be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of good teaching. Timothy, you yourself, the Word of God must be your soul's appetite. And it's not just that the Word is to go through you to others. The Word must be in you in your own life and ministry. It's in the present tense. You are to be constantly being trained in. You are to be constantly nourished by. He says, on the words of the faith. This is the special diet of God's ministers. And if we are to be effectively used by God, we must be pure and holy instruments in the hands of God. And it is the ministry of the Word of God to sanctify the man of God and to make us like the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like produces like. And it is only a holy book that can produce a holy life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Timothy, you must be constantly nourished on the words of the faith. The faith here is the objective faith, the Christian faith. Uh, There is the subjective faith, which is my faith in God, my faith in Christ Jesus. But the objective faith, with the definite article, the, refers to the sum of Christian truth. It refers to the Old Testament, to the teachings of Christ, to the teachings of the apostles, to those parts of the New Testament that were already beginning to be recorded. In Galatians 1, verse 23, they said of Saul, as soon as he was converted, he was preaching the faith. And in Galatians 6.10, it speaks of the household of the faith. Jude 3 says to earnestly contend for the faith. This is what Timothy is to be constantly nourishing himself upon, is the words of the faith. And then he adds, and sound doctrine. The word for sound here is really the same word that was used for good servant, kalos, And it is good 
teaching or sound doctrine, that which is morally good and intrinsically right and valuable, that is what Timothy is to be feeding his soul upon, is the Word of God. All good servants of Christ Jesus are those who are constantly nourished upon the words of the faith and sound doctrine. There are no exceptions to this rule. And the more we feed upon the Word of God, and the more the Word of God is internalized within us, and the more the Word of God does its work within us to mature and to grow us into Christ's likeness, the more effective we will be as an instrument in the hand of God. We must be feeding upon the Word. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, Moses wrote, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. How often do we eat bread? It's representative of all that we would eat. In any given day, we would eat multiple times in a day. And by way of parallel, even so must we be feeding upon the Word of God if we are to be sustained and if we are to be strengthened in the work of God. Psalm 119, verse 103, "'How sweet are your words to my taste.'" Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, the Word of God is so sweet and satisfying to us that, that, that our soul's delight is to take in the Word. Jeremiah 15, verse 16, your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. Jeremiah literally inhaled the Word. He devoured the Word. He consumed the Word. In 1 Peter 2, verse 2, Paul writes, like, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word. Most of us here tonight have had newborn babes, and we have known what that is like for the baby to be crying out, and there's nothing else that will satisfy that baby. You can turn the football game on, it will do nothing to curtail the crying. You can go out and mow the yard, it will do nothing. You can go buy something at the mall, it will do nothing to curtail the crying of the newborn babe. There is one thing and one thing only that baby wants, and it, and it is milk. And it will not, he or she will not stop crying out until he or she is fed. This is exactly how we must be. As men of God, we must desire the Word of God more than anyone else in the entire church. God must enlarge our hearts and quicken our appetites and our, and our thirsting for the Word of God. And it is the Word of God that has sanctifying power. If we are to be an awful weapon in the hand of God, the Word must do its work in us first. Psalm 119, verse 9, "'How can a young man keep his way pure?' How can a young pastor keep his way pure? How can an old pastor keep his way pure? 
By keeping it according to your word. Verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. What a restraining power the word has in our lives as we treasure it in our hearts. We treasure the word more than we treasure our sin. John 17, verse 17, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God contains the redeeming truth of God, and it has sanctifying power to set our hearts apart from that which is unholy in our lives. If we as pastors are to be as holy as God is holy, a standard with which we will never meet, but the striving after we must be ever in pursuant of, then the Word of God we preach must saturate our minds, it must permeate our soul, it must subdue our flesh, it must confront our sin, it must sting our conscience, it must convict our spirit, it must sanctify our heart, it must challenge our will, it must nurture our growth, it must direct our feet, and it must reproduce our Savior and His likeness in us. Our spiritual lives will grow no further than our intake of the Word of God in our lives. We will never measure up to the intake of the Word of God into our lives, but our Christian lives will not grow one inch past the intake of the Word of God into our lives. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, the rest of the verse. That by it, referring to the pure milk of the Word, you may grow in respect to salvation. Such a hunger for the Word of God that produces personal holiness in our lives has always marked God's choicest instruments whom God uses in this world. It was already been mentioned today by Lig Duncan, the great English evangelist George Whitfield. What impresses me about Whitfield is not so much his preaching, though I'm greatly impressed by it, but his piety. In reading that two-volume by Arnold Dallimore, my heart has been challenged and convicted and encouraged again and again and again in the pursuit of personal piety and, and godliness. Dallimore describes Whitfield's early days as a minister. He says, we can visualize Whitfield at five in the morning in his room over Harris's bookstore. He is on his knees with his Bible, his Greek New Testament, and a volume of Matthew Henry before him. Dalimore adds that Whitfield prayed over every line and every word in his Greek text, and in, da and in Matthew Henry's commentary, as we've already heard, Whitfield himself asserted, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees. This proved meat indeed and drink indeed to my soul. I daily receive fresh light 
and power from above. And it became my soul's delight. And what God was doing in Whitfield's life as he was converted as a young man, 21 going on 22, by the time he would be 24, he would electrify England with the most spirit-anointed preaching that nation and that island had ever heard. But it was when he was alone with God on his knees with an open Bible and pouring his soul over the Word of God that God was doing something within him that would shake the nation. And so it is, as we are on our knees, whether literally or figuratively, in submission before the Word of God and praying over the Word of God and, and, and digging into the Word of God, it is there that God is doing His work in us that will be a chief determining factor in the effectiveness of our ministry. Whitfield added, if we ever once get above our Bibles and cease making the written Word of God our sole rule, both as to faith and practice, we shall soon lie open to all manner of delusion. He said, study to know God more and more, for the more you know about God, the more you will love Him. Surely this speaks to every man in this room tonight, beginning with the one standing behind this podium, that we must plunge ourselves into the depths of the ocean of God's truth contained within His Word. And as we go down into the Word and find the pearls that lay there and grab them in our hand and come back up to the surface, our ministry is being effectively prepared for great use, but our lives are being conformed into the very image of Christ. When Robert Murray McShane was a student at the University of Edinburgh in Divinity Hall, one of his professors was the famous Thomas Chalmers, who would lead the Great Disruption in 1843, 450 pastors to bolt out. Early in Chalmers' ministry, by his own admission, he was unconverted. He did not know the Lord. He had more pleasure in teaching mathematics than he did in teaching the Bible. He had a neighbor who lived just down the path from him who would come to his house on Sunday, excuse me, Saturday evenings. His name was John Bonthron. And he would come to Chalmers' house and he would find Chalmers never studying his Bible on Saturday night. He said, I, I find you busy, sir, with one thing or another, but when I come, I never find you at your studies for the Sabbath. Chalmers just rebuffed the probe, and he says, oh, an hour or two on Saturday is quite enough for that. But then came the great change in Chalmers' life. 
And Chalmers was born again. And this same neighbor would continue to come to Chalmers' house on a Saturday evening to inquire of his neighbor for the next day's ministry. And then, and Bonthron said, I now never come in, sir, but that I always find you at your Bible. To which Chalmers responded, All too little, John, all too little. This is the way it is in our lives. Because we've been born again, God has written His Word upon the tablet of our heart. He has given us, by His Spirit and by the new nature, a hunger and a desire for His Word. And for those of us who have been called by God to preach, it is never enough study in His Word, never enough probing Never enough applying, never enough internalizing of the Word. John MacArthur writes, The principal issue is not how good a communicator a man is, or how well he knows the culture and the contemporary issues, or even how well he knows the particular vicissitudes of his flock. The principal issue is how well he knows the Word of God. Since God's revelation perfectly assesses all issues in every time and in every life and addresses them with the divine will, it is through the knowledge of the Word that the pastor fulfills his calling to lead his people and himself through spiritual growth to Christ's likeness. This is where our personal holiness begins. It begins with us, with the Word of God, in a humble posture before that Word, longing for the Word, eating and consuming the Word, and internalizing it into our lives. Would you say tonight that the hunger within your heart and within your soul is intensifying, is growing stronger, that there is an increased appetite in your soul and in your life for more of the Word of God to be pouring into your mind and renewing it and pouring it into your soul and satisfying it and strengthening your faith? Are you finding that there is a stronger pull in your life toward the Word of God which alone can conform us into the image of Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit. Those are vital, healthy, vital signs in the life of every one of us tonight as we have an enlarged hunger for the Word. But look back, if you would, at 1 Timothy 4, and I I must wrap this up. I want you to note, third... Appropriate the truth. At the end of verse 3, he adds this intentionally. As Paul addresses Timothy, he, he says that Timothy, if you're to be a good servant, you must be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. And then he adds this at the end of the verse, which you have been following. He wants to underscore the responsibility that Timothy has not to merely have it intellectually in his mind, though it must be intellectual, 
But it must go beyond the intellect. And it must inflame the affections. And it must challenge the will. And it must lead to obedience and lead to repentance. And the Word of God must find its place in Timothy's life. And he says, which you have been following. It's a a beautiful verb that means literally to follow close. There's a prefix in front of the verb, para, like parallel. Two things side by side, tightly to close next to each other, side by side, like the paraclete, one called along next to us. And the idea is that the Word of God and Timothy are just side by side. And Timothy is not living out over here away from the Word of God, but that Timothy is in stride for stride with the Word of God, that his life is going in the same direction as the Word of God is taking him, and that the Word of God is his, is his companion, that the Word of God is a, a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path, and in this dark world, it is the Word of God that is shining the light in front of Timothy's path. That this word that is so close to Timothy is a sharp two-edged sword that is continually cutting as far as the division of soul and spirit and, and revealing Timothy to Timothy that the Word of God is a mirror into which Timothy looks and sees himself and sees his life for what it truly is. And Timothy begins in some faint measure to see himself as, as God sees him. This word that Timothy has been following is so necessary in Timothy's life. It is so necessary in, in our life. Philip Brooks, in his lectures on, on preaching, makes the comment that too many preachers are like the conductor at the train station, calling out the names of faraway destinations where the train will be going, but that man has never been to those cities. That he knows the names and he knows the direction the train is going, but he himself has never been there. How sad it is for many preachers to speak of spiritual things that they know not of in their own life. We cannot take people where we have not already gone. We cannot impart what we ourselves do not possess. And it must strike our own hearts and our own lives. And we be following the Word of God. And then call upon others to follow me as I follow Christ. The good minister is putting into practice what he is learning in the Word. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest after preaching to others, I myself may be a dokamas, disqualified, put out of the race. It is imperative in that metaphor that we not only be the herald who announces the race and announces the rules to others, but that as we get in the starting blocks and we run the very race that we announce to others, 
we must keep the rules of the race that we proclaim to others. And what a tragedy it is when we as men of God are like that herald who announces the race and the rules. But when we get into the race, we fail to buffet our body. Too many pastors are buffeting their bodies, not buffeting their bodies. And we must make it our slave, beat it down, deal aggressively. Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, chop it off. Deal radically with whatever sin there is that is lurking within the heart. It is the Word of God that convicts of sin. It probes the heart. It disturbs the conscience. It redirects the life. It guards our speech. It purifies our ambitions. It shapes our will. It ignites our inner person. Finally, I want you to note at the beginning of verse 7, just for the completeness of this, because tomorrow morning I want to pick up in the middle of, of verse 7. But at the, at the beginning of verse 7, avoid myths. Notice he says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. It's a very strong imperative command. Have nothing to do. Paul says there is to be a zero tolerance policy, Timothy, in your spiritual life. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. It's intentionally sarcastic. And it was used in philosophical circles, this fit only for old women, as a term of disdain. These fables are legends, myths, fictitious stories, manufactured, not found in the Word of God. Earlier in 1 Timothy 1 verse 4, he says, do not pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, just these speculative interpretations of Old Testament accounts involving the allegorizing of genealogies and, and family trees and, and, and eisegeting at best and reading into these genealogies what has no authorial intent, has, has no interpretive value whatsoever, being focused upon the pedigree of the patriarchs and, and twisting those genealogies to concoct a message that had nothing to do with what Moses intended as he wrote these genealogies. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, just have absolutely nothing to do with these things. And there are plenty of religious superstitions today out there beginning in the Roman Catholic Church and all of their inventions that have no biblical basis whatsoever and superstitions found elsewhere 
Paul says to Timothy and he says to us to avoid them like the plague. Well, I began this message by reading this letter from Robert Murray McShane that the minister is to be an awful weapon in the hand of a holy God. And McShane understood the centrality and the primacy of the Word of God in his life. And McShane would write in his memoirs, I ought to read three chapters of the Bible in secret every day. He said, what plant can be unwatered and not wither? It's a rhetorical question. And he is recognizing that if my spiritual life is not watered by the supernatural Word of God, then my spiritual life will, will wither and it will be unfruitful. McShane went on to say, read the Bible and read the Bible only. He read other things, but his emphasis was upon the Scripture. He said, I have poured over my Bible on my knees for, for hours. And the effect of this time in the Word of God was so abundantly clear. I close with this. One man writing of first, as a first-hand witness of McShane's public preaching, he said he preached with eternity stamped on his brow. He said, I was spellbound and would not keep my eyes off him for a moment, meaning he was riveting as I, as I listened to McShane preach the Word of God. He said, I trembled, and I never felt God so near. His appeals went to my heart. And as he spoke of the last great day, for once I began to pray to God concerning that last day. Close quote. It's one thing just to say those words in the pulpit. It's something else for those words to be accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit and to be sent forth from a holy life. And it was the time that McShane spent alone with God in the Word and in prayer, the deeper he went into the Word, the higher he rose in the pulpit to preach the Word. And that is precisely what Paul is saying to Timothy. And it is precisely what God is saying to each and every one of us here tonight that if we are to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, we must be pointing out these apostasies, but principally, we must be constantly nourished upon the words of the faith and sound doctrine, and we must be following them in our own spiritual lives. Tonight, I'm sure there's not a man in this room, who would say, I have too much of the Word. We all feel challenged. It's like the subject of prayer. Who, who would say they pray too much? We all feel that we have, in some ways, and in different degrees, fallen short 
of what we should be doing in prayer. And we feel the same in the Word of God. That is a healthy, vital sign of humility to realize I need more of God's Word in me and I need more of the Word of God to dominate my life and to renew my mind and to be shaping me into the very image of the author of this book, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we have pulled apart for these few days to be together, may this be a parenthesis in time for us to pause and to give thought to our own spiritual life. What would be required of me to be an awful weapon in the hand of God that would strike terror into the enemy's ears? It would have to begin with our own personal holiness and godliness. And it would have to begin with the ministry of the Word of God having a deep effect to bring about increased growth in our sanctification. As we spend these days here together, may God increase our desire for more of the Word, and may there be more godliness and holiness being produced in us. The churches to which we will return and the ministries to which we will go back to will be far more greatly advanced as you and I live lives that are marked by personal purity, holiness, and godliness. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the instruction from Paul to Timothy recorded in your word for every generation of ministers to read and to receive. And Father, I pray that tonight, that as we have looked into this section, that there would be its effect upon our own spiritual lives and upon our effectiveness and usefulness in your work. Lord, we pray with McShane, make us as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. May we continue to turn our back to the world. May we continue to set our gaze upon Christ. May we continue to carry our cross and follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in His name that we pray. Amen.